During the Revolutionary War, a prominent New Jersey jurist, Judge Imlay, hadn't yet committed to either the revolutionaries or the loyalists. He hadn't yet committed to either revolutionaries or the loyalists. So when Washington encountered one of Imlay's slaves, he asked him which way the judge was leaning. And his slave answered, until my master knows which is the strongest group, he's staying on the fence. And Washington was so amused by that response that he retold it enough times for it to become part of our language, sitting on a fence. It was in 1828, Carl Schurz, insisting on political independence, described his position as that of a man sitting on a fence with clean boots, watching carefully which way he may leap to keep out of the mud. And as a 60s band put it, I'm just sitting on a fence. You can say I got no sense. Trying to make up my mind really is too horrifying, so I'm sitting on a fence. I mean, can one really go through life sitting on a fence regarding the big decisions in life? Do you find yourself unable to make up your mind out of some fear? Maybe it's fear of making the wrong decision or or it's fear of what others might think. One person expressed it this way. He said, I try and sit on the fence because as soon as you voice any kind of opinion, people begin to think you're an idiot. (laughs) Well, fence sitting is more serious than that. It has greater consequences than what others just might think of us. Reminded of a a skit uh, at camp several years ago. There was a fence that one girl sat on. And someone would come along in this skit and, and, and they try and convince her to be saved. Get off the fence and, and be saved. And she said, no, 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 I'm not going to choose that. And then someone else would come into the scene and, and, and this person would try to, to lead that one on the fence to an open, indulgent, flagrant sin. And, and she said, no, 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 I don't want to do that either. She was content to sit right on the fence. But when the judgment came, Satan came for the fence sitter. And she said and explained that she hadn't gone on Satan's side. And he said, no, you didn't choose me or you didn't choose Jesus. But you see, I own the fence. I own the fence. Our passage this morning in this lovely book (laughs) is written to those who are on the fence. Those who want it both ways. These are words here in James chapter 4 to the ones who want to hear what the Bible has to say, but only in selected areas of life. I like this. I don't like that. Give me this. Don't give me that. Been making our way through the book of James. We have discovered that James gets in our face in order to get into our hearts. And he calls his first century readers and us to a radical hands-on faith that is shown and not merely talked about. We've been challenged to run our faith through a series of tests to examine its genuineness. Is my faith real? 
Well, James says, as, how do you respond to trials? Is my faith real? How do you respond to temptations? Is our faith real? Well, how do you respond to truth? How do you treat people? Is our faith real? James says, show me. He says, show me by your good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And that's where we left off last time, that there were two kinds of wisdom, a wisdom of this world and a wisdom from above. And the wisdom of this world, driven by selfish ambition and bitter envy, result in fights and quarrels. Wisdom that comes from God sows seeds of peace and produces a harvest of righteousness. Let me read that closing verse of James chapter 3. I hope you're there in your Bibles. hope you never close them. James chapter 3. I want to read verse 18. It really sets up our context for this morning. Chapter 3, verse 18, follow along. It says, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. It is that closing verse that makes the opening verses of chapter 4 quite striking. Now remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original when James first wrote this. And after this beautiful verse about peacemaking there in verse 18, James goes on to say in verse 1 of James chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, don't answer that. Don't answer it. Let me answer it for you. Here's the answer. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Listen, he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. See, the presenting problem is you have a conflict with others. Often that is the presenting problem, whether it's someone who comes into my office or or someone as you talk to each other. The presenting problem is I have a conflict with someone else. But the issue goes deeper than that, James says. You have a conflict with yourself. There are conflicting passions within. You see, every sin is an inside job. The devil didn't make me do it. No, James says, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Conflicting passions will inevitably display itself in some form of fighting and quarreling, but the real issue is on the insides. More than that, there lies an even deeper problem than that. Where there is conflict with others, which is telling of a conflict within ourselves, it is also revealing that there's a conflict with God. A problem with others is a barometer of our relationship with God. And this is, where James ta- this is what James takes on next. James moves from the problem of conflicting passions to address this problem of divided affections. Divided affections. And the test this morning, loved ones, is one of friendship. Friendship. Are you embracing the world's ways or are you embracing God's ways? Is our thinking and beliefs more in line with the world or is our thinking and beliefs more in line with the world's? 
or is it God's? What best describes you, a friend of the world or a friend of God's? Or are you trying to sit on the fence? He who sits on a fence will soon discover that this fence is wobbly, this fence is painful, and inevitably one will come down on one side or the other. We either stand under God's authority or we will find God standing against us. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. That's our main point this morning. We either stand under God's authority or we will find God standing against us. There is no neutral ground. It is one or the other. We either stand under God's authority or we will find God standing against us. Follow along as I pick it up in verse 4. Verse 4. You adulterous people. Ouch. James James is not being very nice here. Can you imagine if I began this sermon by calling you adulterous people? (laughs) We have some problems. It's not too seeker sensitive, is it? This is uncomfortable language. The Jewish people to whom James is writing would have quickly understood the use of this word here. God spoke often in the Old Testament reference to the covenant people of Israel that they had committed spiritual adultery. It is the language of marriage, of people who cheated on their faithful God. And James applies that to those who should be enjoying intimacy with God, but instead are running around on the God of the universe and chasing the pleasures of this world. We're not soft-coating this. And James goes on the rest of verse 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You see, a test of friendship. There's no sitting on the fence. We either stand under God's authority or we will find God standing against us. And so James shows us the path to the path of being a friend of God rather than an enemy of God. I mean, is there hope for the one who's trying to have it both ways? Is is there a way back even if you're falling on the wrong side of the fence? Yes, James provides us some practical pointers on the pathway to spiritual wholeness. He provides some practical pointers in the pathway to spiritual wholeness. There's six of them that I'm going to give you. We're not going to hit all of them of equal time. But number one, the number one pointer, first pointer on this pathway to spiritual wholeness is bow before him in all humility. Bow before him in all humility. We sang that this morning over and over and over again. Bow before him in all humility. Let me read verse five. Verse five. Or don't you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit who He caused to live in us envies intensely? And you go, huh? <laughs> well, if it's of any comfort, this has baffled biblical scholars for a long time. They're not quite sure what the meaning is here. It's a tricky verse to translate. If you're using an NIV translation, you will notice that in the, that, that, that in the footnote... There are two possibilities for understanding this verse. They gave you the one in the verse, and then they give you two two other options, two other possibilities of how you could translate this verse. Now, I don't want to get into each of these options, but I'm going to let you in on where I land with this verse. And I wish the NIV went with the first option there that you find in the footnote, because I think that's the best way to take this. 
Because what I believe James is getting at here is that God is a jealous God. Old Testament speaks of that. God is a jealous God, and he jealously longs for the Spirit, small s, not big s, Holy Spirit. He jealously longs for the Spirit that he made to live in us. He longs for us. He longs for our affections. In other words, just as I, as a husband, am jealous for the affections of my wife, and anybody who attempts to steal the affections of my wife from me will be met with the greatest opposition. Is that perfectly clear? (laughs) Good, we can move on. Now, while some jealousy can go get over the top, this jealousy I have for my wife's affection is appropriate. In a much greater way, the God of the universe is jealous for your affections, and anyone or anything that attempts to steal that will be met with divine force. God knows that what you are after cannot be found in anyone or anything but him. He knows that all the places we look to for fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness, they're all going to come up short. We are the bride of Christ, and he does not want us to look outside of our relationship with him to have our needs met. That's what he's saying. And here's the beautiful part to this. The God who is jealous for your affections is committed to pouring out his grace upon you. Look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth Again, the hymn writer said. An artist once submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for an exhibition, but he forgot, he neglected to give that painting a title. So the gallery, faced with the need to supply some title for this beautiful painting of the Niagara Falls, they came up with these words. They entitled this painting of the Niagara Falls, More to Follow. (laughs) I like that. Old Niagara Falls, spilling over billions of gallons per year for thousands of years, has more than met the needs of those below, and it's a fit emblem of the flood of God's grace. There is always more to follow. And remember, there is more grace in him than there is sin in you. And so to the one who has fallen, more grace. To the one whose heart is wounded, more grace. To the one who knows it's time to change, he gives more grace. To the one whose life had been shattered by a divorce, more grace. To the one who needs to let go of bitterness and unforgiveness, more grace grace, to take a stand, to share the gospel with a friend, to deal with that classmate mate or, or co-worker who seems out to get you, he gives more.
grace. To deal with the ashes of failure or that most recent diagnosis or with the family members this Thanksgiving, he gives more grace. God promises to give us more and more grace to do whatever it is we need to do. I am helpless without the grace of God. I'm helpless. As it's been said, for daily need, there's daily grace. For sudden need, sudden grace. For overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. What's the one condition? How do we receive this grace? Well, the end of verse 6 says it plainly. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We see it again down in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Since God favors the humble, the only valid response is to bow before him in all humility. That's pointer number one, a second practical pointer on the pathway to spiritual wholeness. The second pointer is submit to God completely. Submit to God completely. Not only bow before him in all humility. Secondly, submit to God completely. Submission to God is the outworking of a truly humble heart. It's only submission to God, placing ourselves under his authority by which we can then experience exaltation. This is the antidote right here for friendship with the world. Submit to God completely. And the word submission here means to align ourselves under the authority of another. It's to go the way of heavenly wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. And James here is after a joyful abandonment to the will and purposes of God. He doesn't want just obedience. He wants obedience and submission. You can obey and not submit. You can so the question is, am I, are we struggling with submitting to God completely? Where are we finding it difficult to submit right now? And submission to God is, is worked out in our relationship to others. You know, the child who will not listen and submit to his youth leader or teacher at school, he or she does not submit to God. The one in the church who's cantankerous and unloving and hypercritical, he or she does not submit to God. The one who cannot submit to his boss at work or to the authorities of the state and local police department does not submit to God. If we are to get off the fence onto the pathway of spiritual wholeness rather than double-mindedness, we need to bow before God in all humility. We need to submit to God completely. And thirdly, we need to resist the devil consistently. We need to resist the devil consistently. The middle of verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. See, rather than resist God, start resisting the devil. It's when we submit to God that we can have a sustained resistance to the devil. And I say sustained resistance because it isn't a one-time thing. You know, just do it once, he's gone forever, never to bother you again. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it's worthy to touch on. There is much confusion around our dealings with Satan. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to rebuke the devil. 
Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to chant certain phrases, learn some special spiritual warfare techniques at some boot camp, or seek to engage Satan in some kind of spiritual combat. Listen, we can't handle him. We can't. Don't try and take him on with our own weapons and become obsessed with him. I mean, don't deny his existence either, for then he still gets the victory. But do as we're commanded here. Resist him. Resist him. You know what it means? Stand in opposition to him. And he will have to do what? Leave. Oh, he'll return again. But resist again and again and again. So when that, when that anger surges up and, and giving in will we'll give the evil one a foothold in our lives, resist. When that word you're about to speak is from the pit of hell, resist. When giving in to that lust was going to lead you into this world of darkness, resist. When hedonism, which is the word for pleasures here, will only come between you and others and will only become between you and God, resist. Submit to God, resist him, resist Satan. There was an old chorus that went something like this. I met Jesus at the crossroads where the two ways meet. Satan, too, was standing there, and he said, Come this way, lots and lots of pleasures I can give to you this day. But I said, No, there's Jesus here. Just see what he offers me. Down here, my sins are forgiven. Up there, a home in heaven. Praise God, that's the way for me. That's how we resist. Submit to God completely. Resist the devil consistently. We already saw a bow before him in all humility. Fourthly, pursue God passionately. Pursue God passionately. Look at verse 8. It says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, we like to reverse this. We say, when I can feel his presence... And when I can see God doing this and and God doing that, then I'm going to start to draw near to God. That isn't how it works, according to James. We ought to wait for God before we draw near. We ought to wait for a certain feeling to show up before we pursue him. If you're on that fence, loved one, don't wait. Come near to God now. Pursue God passionately. Followers of Christ, if you're starting to to let things slip in your life, in your walk with him, choose this day to go hard after him. Brothers and sisters, we're going to need to be deliberate in cultivating our relationship with Christ. What do you have in place that draws you near to him? What effort are you making to draw near to God? What disciplines and what spiritual exercises do you practice that is cultivating a nearness to God and the privacy of your own heart? What are you doing here in your privacy of your own heart when you're by yourself? Your own personal disciplines. Because listen, if you are bored with God's word in public, then you are likely bored with his word in in private. If you find it difficult to sing praise to God in public, then likely there isn't a song in your heart in private. If you don't want to be around God's people in public, then likely you struggle with intimacy with God in private. Are you drawing near to the Lord? Or there's a lot of distance between you right now. In the days of, of bent seats and vehicles, a lot of you don't even know what that is. 
Well, the husband, in this particular case, the husband enjoyed having his young bride sit right next to him as he drove. For years, this was their common practice. She'd sit right next to him as he drove. As time went on, things changed, and eventually she sat close to the window with the space between them. One day as they were driving, the wife complained, Oh, remember the days when we sat close together as you drove? Why aren't we as close as, as we were then? And the husband, driving dryly, said, Who moved? <laughs> like the words on a church sign, if you aren't as close to God as you once used to be, guess who moved? He didn't. Still there. Get off the fence. Stop the drifting, draw near to the Lord, pursue him passionately, and that will put you on the pathway to spiritual wholeness. Fifth pointer that James gives us, desire purity fully. Desire purity fully. Middle of verse 8 says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded or double-souled. Wash your hands, it says. Speaks to the external cleansing that needs to take place. Purify your hearts addresses the stuff going on inside. But have you noticed, as we're making our way down through these practical pointers, I mean, it should be obvious that the way to spiritual wholeness is something we must do. This submission to God thing does not equal passivity. It isn't a call to inactivity. Who does the washing? You do. Wash your hands, you sinners. I can't help but think of the times we tell our kids to wash their hands. <laughs> over and over and over again, you think. They'd get it by now. What is their typical response? I mean, I mean, they come in in the house and playing outside, maybe even in, the, in a mud hole out there or a swamp or something, and they come in and we ask the question, did you wash your, wash your hands? We ask them, did you wash your hands? And they, and they say, I don't need to, right? I don't, I don't need to. God says, do you need to wash your hands? We say, I don't need to. God says, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Go wash your hands. The hands represent our actions. You can tell a lot about someone by looking at their hands. I mean, I'm not referring to palm readers, <laughs> But soft hands or rough hands or callous fingers or dirt under the fingernails speak very well of what a person might do for a living or for some, for some hobby, right? They speak a lot of what's, what they do. Wash your hands, your actions, take care of that. But don't forget about purifying your hearts. Notice this isn't something done for us. It's something we must do. Desire purity fully. I need to move to the next one. Next practical point, treat sin seriously. Treat sin seriously. Verse 9. Verse 9 says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. <laughs> now, is this a call for a life of sadness? Are we supposed to walk around depressed? I think some think that's it, and that's what they do. <laughs> well, it's true, some of us need to lighten up a little. But there's a rightful place for grieving. The people in James's day had the wrong response. They were celebrating when they should have been weeping. 
I mean, it's great to laugh. If you know me at all, I love to laugh. But it is laughter at the right times at the right things. And it's weeping at the right times at the right things. I recall the first time I went to the Magic of Christmas, which was this beautiful um, uh, production put on by Portland uh, Symphony Orchestra. It was marvelous. And they also mixed in a little opera singing, and quite frankly, that did nothing for me at all. Sorry, if you like that, that's fine. But, but what, I, what I noticed when they, when they did this opera thing, I didn't know when I was supposed to clap. I don't know, maybe you don't have that problem. Maybe you lost a lot of respect for me on that one. You think less of me now. But I didn't. there's a certain protocol about clapping that was foreign to me. I, it would have been dreadful for me to have clapped inappropriately. And I almost did a few times. I looked around and said, no one else is clapping. As we continue on this pathway to spiritual wholeness, we need to learn to laugh and cry appropriately. We need to know when to do which. What is the appropriate response to our sin? Not laughter. Not carrying on as if nothing happened. Mourning. Expression of godly sorrow. Do we hate our sin? We say, love the sinner, hate their sin. I have a better idea. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. How's that? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Oh, I hate everybody else's. I might even tell them. Do I hate mine? Do I hate mine? Do I grieve over my sin? I mean, when is the last time you wept over your sins? Not trying to be dramatic. I mean, do you consider your sin as as against God first? What sin are you not treating seriously right now, and you're thinking of it as as no big deal? You know, in one sense, this whole idea of friendship with the world is no big deal to us. We tend to downplay it. James says it is a big deal. Loved one, are you trying to be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time? So you're going to sit on the fence. You can't do it. You can't do it. One of two things will happen. You will either change your lifestyle in repentance, bow before God in all humility and brokenness, or you will remain in your lifestyle. It's one or the other. You will either realign yourself with God and submit to him, or you will have to redefine God in a way that accommodates your lifestyle. One or the other. And isn't that what's happened in our day? I don't want to think of God that way. Of course you don't. It's inconvenient. And so we make God into our own image, and, and one that's not so demanding, one that's a little more, you know, convenient to what I want to do so I can carry on. You cannot have it both ways. We either stand under God's authority, we find God standing against us. Are you trying to sit on the proverbial fence? The call back, the call off the fence is submission to him, total surrender. F.B. Meyer was a Baptist preacher in the heart of London in the 19th century. By all appearances, things seemed to be going well, very well for him and his ministry. 
Others would comment how successful his ministry was. Yet one night, one night, a real turning point in his life, he sat dejectedly in his office. In the midst of a successful ministry, F.B. Meyer confessed that something was lacking in his life in ministry. He confessed that his early Christian life was marred and his ministry paralyzed just because he had kept back one thing from the bunch of keys he had given to the Lord. He said, God, you can have all of these but one. The key of one room was kept for personal use and the Lord was shut out. And on that crucial moment in his life, he wept and he cried to the Lord and he said, take this key. Lord, take the keys to all the rooms in my life. This one, all of these and this one too. Gary Thomas put it this way. He said, Christian health is not defined by how happy we are, how prosperous or healthy we are, or even how many people we have led to the Lord in the past year. Christian health is ultimately defined by how sincerely we wave our flag of surrender. How surrendered are you to God? Is the desire of your heart, I surrender some? Or is it, I surrender Will you trust God with the keys? Will you pray this morning, Lord, I surrender all. That's your heart's desire. You humble yourself before him. It says he will give you the grace you need to live out the desire of your heart. God promises as we come to him that way, he will lift us up. I want to close by us singing as a prayer to God. We sang it earlier, now in a little different context. All to Jesus, I surrender. Can we sing that? The desire of our hearts. Not saying you have it all figured out in your life before you can sing it. But is that where you're pointed? Is that what you want? Is that what I want? Well, let's stand and sing as the praise team closes us with that song. All to Jesus, I surrender. May that be the prayer of your heart this morning.